0: I, I had like a, there was an Osteria next, uh, next to my high school, like a very authentic type of place where you would find the same old man in the morning. Well, unfortunately, you know, you're going to school, but they would be unfortunately already like drinking their first glass of wine. That's a separate type of problem. I'm not saying that that's what's happening here. But then you, know, you will still have the kids from school leaving and getting their sandwich there. Or when there was like a strike, we would all be sitting there. And, you know, the old men would be playing cards, we would also be playing cards. Uh, And that was also the place, despite the fact that I would very often go there during the week, it was also the place where I would meet up with my friends Mm. from other schools as well, but like on Saturday night for our dinner, which was probably the same sandwich we would also (laughs) eat during the week. But it was like affordable and it was unpretentious. Uh, which I think is also something that like the atmosphere here is also very unpretentious and that's also something that I don't
1: I'm Owen Walsh and this is the Brussels Beer City Podcast, The Diaspora Season. If this is your first time listening, this second season of the Brussels Beer City Podcast is all about Brussels' diaspora drinking dens. In the first two episodes, we covered two diaspora groups close to my own heart, Irish and Flemish. But in this instalment, we're talking to and about what is probably the oldest migrant community in Brussels that doesn't come from any of Belgium's neighbours. A community that's been serving up ice cream, pasta, vermouth, and other Mediterranean delights for over a century. I'm, of course, talking about Brussels Italians, their epiceries, cafes, restaurants, and bars. This is episode three of the Brussels Beer City podcast. Ciao, Belga.
2: À Bruxelles pour chercher le travail parce qu'en Italie j'avais un travail mais pas, ouais. la, pas l'argent, ouais, pas ouais. le salaire. Et alors je dit écoute c'est huit mois que je suis venu ici à huit, huit ans ouais. que je suis venu pour vacances. Ouais. Et alors j'y connais bien Bruxelles, la Belgique. J'ai essayé chercher le travail là-bas.
1: That's Valerio Bannon speaking. I spoke to Valerio back in 2019 for a Brussels Beer City article about restaurants and beer. A chef by training, Bannon came to Brussels, as he said, for work in one of the city's many Italian restaurants over a decade ago. He was eventually joined by his brother and together they took over a Sardinian restaurant on Rue de L'Anseignement at which Bannon had been working previously. Within six months, the two of them had given it a new name, Latana, and a new Roman identity. That meant no kitsch Italian frescoes or wicker basket Chianti bottles or Sardinian regional specialties. Instead, Bannon developed a menu focused on Roman classics, paired with beer from artisanal Italian breweries. Brussels restaurants were not known then, or really now to be honest, for adventurous beer lists. Either the food was good and the beer was bad, or vice versa. It was a decision to put beer at the heart of Latana that wrong-footed some of his earliest customers, as he tells me
2: because the base of the menu is cuisine. It has nothing to do with la sardine. And I put a list of beer. and the premier client who came came to me said, the wine? I said, I don't
1: have wine. says that his earliest clients would say in the restaurant, once they've come in and taken a look at the menu, you don't have any wine, only beer. That's not an Italian restaurant. But beer was important in Valerio's culinary education, And the Belgian and Italian brewing communities have shared a long standing mutual appreciation for each other. Belgian beer having been influential in Italy's emerging beer scene, and Italian drinkers having been vital in supporting Brussels' ailing Lambic brewing tradition when it looked like it might disappear in the 1980s. It was logical for him to make beer essential to the Latana experience. And it worked.
2: Uh, Petit à petit, tout le monde uh, l'a demandé, l'a essayé.
1: Little by little, he says, it started to work. And after a year and a half, everybody was coming to the restaurant to taste the best Italian beer he could get. Since 2019, in that interview we did, Latana has moved to a new location and consolidated the restaurant and the bottle shop in the one place. He's also added some natural Italian wines to the menu. But the Roman identity and the beer stock fridges remain. And diners have kept coming. I'm sure why wouldn't they? Italians have been feeding Brussels residents almost since the first ones arrived in the 19th century. In the intervening years through political upheaval, racism, discrimination, and not a little tragedy, two things have remained constant in this relationship. New Italian arrivals to Brussels have successfully mined the culinary and gustatory reputation of their homeland to make a life for themselves beyond the Alps. And the appetite of Brussels residents for the Italianata they have discovered in these epiceries, delis, cafes and restaurants, remains unsatiated. The standard template for an Italian restaurant in Brussels has morphed over time as new generations of Italians have arrived to adapt the formula to their own ends. Sometimes they've flattened their identities to appeal to a broader audience, at other times they've played to their regional strengths and focused on their own community, and some like Bannon at Latana, have taken it in new or unexpected creative directions. <laughs>
2: okay. yeah. yeah. okay.
1: Banon told me that Latana means lair or den in Italian. And he chose the name because he wanted, like so many of his predecessors, to signify what he was importing into Brussels, some of the cozy, warm familiarity and hospitality of his Mediterranean home. Almost the first thing that Anne Morelli does when we've taken our seats at Le is correct my pronunciation. Morelli is a historian whose work is focused on the histories of religion and migration.
3: C'est un des seuls cafés de l'époque qui est resté jusqu'à nos jours avec architecture.
1: Directly across the street from Brussels' old stock exchange building, Cirio is, Morelli says, the sole survivor of this first generation of Brussels' Italian cafes. It was, in fact, already open for a half century by the time Morelli's anti-fascist Italian grandparents arrived in the 1930s to Brussels, seeking political asylum. Now, in telling the orthodox story of Italian migration to Brussels and Belgium, two dates recur, June 23, 1946, and August 8, 1956. In 1946, the Belgian and Italian governments agreed the protocol concerning the recruitment of Italian workers and their establishment in Belgium, by which Belgium would secure Italian workers for its coal mines, and Italy would enjoy favourable rates for said coal. In the years after the signing of the agreement, Belgium's Italian population ballooned from around 30,000 to over 200,000, and Brussels' Italian population increased in parallel. But 10 years later, that came to an end. Belgium. Pithead activity tells of underground disaster at the Bitterheart Colliery
3: Charleroi when a sudden fire trapped over 270 miners 2,000 feet below.
1: Desperate efforts were made to rescue the entombed men, mostly Belgians and Italians, but a tragic death row resulted from one of the worst mining disasters of modern times. Two hundred and sixty-two miners, 136 of them Italians, died in the Bois de Casier mining disaster in Marcinel, and it focused attention on the dreadful working and living conditions of miners and their families, and precipitated the premature end of organised Italian migration to Brussels. But as Morelli's own family history and the existence of Luturio show, the presence of Italians in the Belgian capital long predates 1946. As far back as the 1850s and 1860s, Italians, mostly from Lombardy in the north, were living and working in Brussels. Some were organ grinders and glassmakers, mosaicists and newspapermen, but most worked in hospitality, as ice cream sellers or running small Italian bars, manning high-end grocers, come cafes like Le Cheerio. Opened in 1886, Le Cheerio was part of a global network of Sal du Dégustation tasting rooms, built by the Italian tin tomato baron Francesco Cirio to promote his products. His Brussels outpost is the only one that survives today, And it's also the only remaining Italian café from an era when downtown Brussels was dotted with Italo-centric cafés and brasseries. Places like Café Cremonesi or Ouvrer Roman, the true Roman. Some, like L'Cirio, hawked vermouth to Brussels' commercial elite, while others sold ice cream and coffee to the city's Italian colony. It was into this small interwar Italian community that Morelli's Neapolitan grandfather and grandmother from Abruzzo arrived almost by chance in
3: the 1930s. Oh, okay. 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 Okay.
1: They were anti-fascists, and so they fled Italy, she says. Having first been expelled from Switzerland and then France, they made it to Brussels just before the war. Brussels had a long reputation as a safe haven for continental radicals, and in the interwar years, Belgium's Italian population swelled to 30,000. Their trajectory and that of Morelli's family parallels the history of Brussels' Italian diaspora before and after the war.
3: Carré italien, c'était toujours rue de la Poste, rue de la Rivière, okay. rue de. Mais là, ou... alors, le premier, le premier appartement que ma famille a loué, c'était rue de la Poste, donc c'était yes. dans le quartier italien.
1: Her grandparents, Morelli says, settled in the city's Italian quarter in the San Giuseppe neighborhood, just behind the Botanical Gardens. Rent there was cheap, and landlords, unlike a lot of places in the rest of the city, didn't discriminate in Italians. And there developed a thriving, albeit politically segregated, cafe culture. A cafe culture that was reflective of the same divisions that these Italians had brought with them from
3: home. <laughs> the
1: Romans, she said used to give people bread and circus, but for the Italians in Brussels, it was bread and politics. People used to go to certain cafes where they knew they shared with people the same political or religious ideals, Morelli says. Cafés had always given succor to radicals, of which there were many of the Italian variety in Brussels. In the interwar years, there were anti-fascist cafes and their fascist equivalents. And after World War II, there were Catholic bars and communist ones, Catholic associations and communist ones, Catholic football clubs, and their communist opponents. Italians were, and remain, Morelli says, more politicized than Belgians, and no one was going to each other's cafe for obvious reasons. There's
3: always been a big difference in politics. Italians have always been more politicized than the Belgians. Traditionally, I don't know today, but traditionally was like that.
1: Morelli's family would eventually leave St. Joss and move to a sort of satellite colony in Molenbeek where she grew up as a child and where they were joined by other Italians after 1946, mostly southerners and Sicilians. Morelli says they came to Brussels to work in factories, breweries and on the era's major public works in lieu of Brussels obviously not having any mines. They worked in the 1958 Universal Expo, they built the roads that got the cars to the Expo location, and later in the 1970s, they helped build out Brussels' metro system. Despite moving away, Morelli's family matriarchs continued to return regularly to St. jos because the shops there, in what was still an Italian neighbourhood, sold things they couldn't get anywhere else.
3: Parce que personne ne connaissait Personne. Les Belges n'avaient pas mangé jamais une lentille. Les Belges n'avaient jamais mangé un pois Et donc, si on voulait acheter ces choses-là, sans parler de la ou des choses comme
1: We had to go to the Italian district, she says, because nobody elsewhere knew what an aubergine was, for example, or sold mozzarella. The Belgians had never eaten them. Or lentils or chickpeas, Morelli says. And if we wanted to buy these things, we had to go there. Now, Italian grocers weren't the only attraction. Right through to the 1970s, the area around Rue de la Rivière, Rue de la Prairie Saint Francois, and Rue de la Poche was still home to most of Brussels' Italian cafes and restaurants. These were family run places, places like Chaise Inez, which opened in 1944, or Albuco, a known anti fascist hangout. By the 1980s, though, the area's Italian quarter was diminishing. Morelli's family and others like them were leaving St. Jos, Molenbeek, and Anderlecht for greener, quieter streets in Brussels' outer
3: boroughs.
1: It was a question of upward mobility, Morelli says, of their migration first to Lacken and then to the Flemish suburbs. Originally, she says, they went to poor neighbourhoods because that's the only place where Italians were able to rent and where the rents were affordable. But when they did a little bit better, Italians went to another neighbourhood with more gardens, trees and more space. And wherever Italians went in Brussels, Italian hospitality followed. Researcher Gail van Ingelgem estimates that between 1946 and 1975, the number of Italian-owned hospitality businesses in Brussels grew from 13 to 69 and by the end of the 80s had almost trebled again to over 150 but in spreading out to the suburbs the italian template underwent a metamorphosis it wasn't enough to target the italian diaspora communities anymore these restaurants needed belgian customers to survive as well so they became less idiosyncratic offering a more flattened italian experience that bent towards the tastes of their northern diners think traditional belgian brasserie spaghetti bolognese topped with generous quantities of grated cheese, or carbonara made with cream. By the 1980s, Belgium's Italian population had reached 300,000, and even in 2016, when the country marked 70 years since the Accord du Charbon, Italian remained the second most common foreign nationality in Belgium, after French. The most visible evidence of their impact was the ubiquity of Italian restaurants in every corner of Brussels and Belgium. for Morelli, that's too clean a narrative because it elides the challenges she and her contemporaries and parents faced in that era, and suggests that their integration was a seamless process.
3: Il faut dire que quand ils sont arrivés ici, il y okay. avait un fort racisme envers les Italiens. Moi, j'avais un nom un peu facile pour ça. C'est Morelli Macaroni.
2: It's
1: wrong, she says. You know, there was racism, there was discrimination against Italians. And she herself experienced first hand slurs shouted at her, Morelli Macaroni, for example. It annoys her that people hold up figureheads like Queen Paola or Enzo Schifo, Elio Di Rupo, as evidence of successful integration.
3: Uh, <laughs> Ah ben oui, les Italiens, il euh, y a la reine Paola, il y a chiffon il y a Damo, un chanteur démodé, il ouais. euh, y a Elio Di Rupo. vous voyez, ça s'est très bien passé pour eux, ouais, mais il y a tous les le... autres,
2: il ouais. <rire> <rire> y a tous les autres. C'est, c'est le la pointe de la
3: This
1: is the tip of the iceberg, she says. For others, it didn't go as well as you might think. It's not a fairy tale, you know, it's a social story. Save for one or two holdouts, Brussels' Italian enclave in Saint-Jos is gone, squeezed out by property speculation, the encroachment of the area's unofficial red light district and the natural transfer of one migrant immigrant community to the next. But Licurio remains largely unchanged since its conversion in the 1920s into the cafe-restaurant it is today. In 2018, it underwent a month-long restoration, though these days it wears its Italian heritage lightly. Absent recently restored adverts for Bellardi vermouth and bottled Americano cocktails, and the name above the entrance, you might not make the Italian connection at all. The drinkers and diners at adjacent tables to Morelli and me are loud Spanish-speaking tourists, And it's as likely as not that Morelli is in fact the only Brussels Italian in the building when we have our drinks. And that social story that she refers to of Italian migration and integration hasn't stopped. The global financial crisis in 2008 and the subsequent Eurozone crisis that rumbled on throughout the early 2010s propelled a new generation of Italians on their own trans-alpine migration to Brussels. Many of them are coming with university degrees and ambitions to find work in or around the EU institutions, and up there in the European Quarter, in the streets around Schuman Roundabout, they will have found a cluster of Italian places where they could indulge, like their predecessors and like Morelli, in a bit of bread and politics. <laughs> Marina,
3: Marina, Marina.
1: Piola Libri is not just a wine bar, Silvia Pastorelli tells me as we sip our cocktails surrounded by shelves full of children's books.
0: I'm Silvia Pastorelli. I'm Italian as my name clearly says. Uh, and we are sitting in Piola Libri. Which is many things. It's a bar. It's also, I think, the closest. Maybe it's even like a osteria because it's also food. Yeah. Uh, so you can also sit here for lunch and have delicious pasta. Um, you can have delicious aperitivo like we're doing now. Um, but you can also buy books. We are sitting in the kids' book section, which is very nice and colorful. Yeah. And there's actually books. Everywhere in the place, mm-hmm. uh, which maybe is one of the reasons that like, first attracted me to the place, like looking at, like seeing the books from the window and then yeah. realizing, oh, it's a bar, it's a bookshop, it's both, mm-hmm. it's a lot of things. Yeah.
1: Piola Libri also provided some welcome respite for Pastorelli, who works in EU affairs, from the politicking and networking of the other Italian establishments in the neighborhood around the EU quarter when she first arrived.
4: It's
0: also like, uh, unfortunately, in the European neighborhood, but it doesn't feel like a bar in the European neighborhood, and I think this is one of the reasons why I like it, Mm -hmm. despite because there's other bars in the European neighborhood that are Italian. Okay. There's one near, very, very close to the parliament that I try to avoid, even if it's like very authentic to certain as an extent like it's the kind of place where you as an italian you go and get your coffee for one euro at the counter do your like quick business and and you leave yeah but it also feels very much like you bubble type of place where you sit there and there's like who is is there and there's someone else who's like working on some you yeah. files or whatever and here you have the families and the little kids drawing and like friends meeting or someone who comes in to look for like the latest issue of Internazionale. <laughs> completely
1: different vibe, despite, like, there's a Per around the corner, really. Almost see it. Before opening Piola Libri, its Bolognese co-founder Jacopo Penizza, like Pastorelli, worked for environmental organizations in Brussels. Unlike Pastorelli, he tired of that work, deciding instead to launch his bar-slash-bookshop with another Brussels-based Italian in 2007. It's not changed much in the intervening years. There are walls stacked with wine bottles and others with books. Brasserie de la Seine glassware dangles from the kitchen ceiling, and black and white photos and Piola Libri merchandise have been hung from the ceiling in the rest of the bar. Unlike Licirio, animated Italian accents dominate the terrace. But it's complemented by Dutch, German, and American inflected English. Treviso Born Pastorelli's line that it was books that drew to piola Libri originally is only a half truth.
0: One of the things the reasons why I, I so now, like, Apple Spritz is super fashionable and you can find it everywhere. But years ago, when I first was here, this was one of the very few places in Brussels where you could find like spritz properly made spritz. I come from the land of spritz, so have a spritz that's, like made in the right way, not with cava but with prosecco. That was a very important. Uh-huh. I, I have asked in bars, like, how do you make your spritz? What's in it? So
1: I hear you don't have to
0: ask. No, no, you, you do, know exactly you. what you're getting that's you know made in the right way. Everything's in the right proportion. Yeah. And it's also accompanied by some food as it's supposed to. Yeah. Which is, a, this is like all very Italian.
1: So. Finding good spritz was a comfort when Pastorelli arrived in Brussels in 2014 as part of this new generation of Italian graduates who'd moved north for work. But it wasn't enough to keep her here because within a year she was gone
0: also I don't think I understood process right. and I was very much living unfortunately I have to admit as an expat with all the people who would gravitate in this neighborhood for all those reasons and like was unfortunately also part of it. part of the problem was maybe that I was sticking too much to the Italian crowd okay
1: but after a brief interregnum in Amsterdam Pastorelli returned with a new job a new attitude and a more balanced relationship with her italian identity and her contact with her fellow Italians in Brussels. Okay.
0: You, 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 I I knew I had a bad experience the first time around. They had like friends that like, I asked me like, we didn't like it. Why are you coming back? And
4: so I said to myself, okay, like forget
0: everything that you know about this place, blank page, start over. Okay. And make more of an effort because I do speak French. Yeah. Uh, I have to admit I don't particularly like it, or maybe it's because I'm not as fluent as I am in English. So that's yeah. you know maybe it's also like frustrating a bit. You know, get to the same level of fluency. I get that. I get that. Uh, but so I made more of an effort.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, and basically, like, Brussels kind of opened up in all different ways. Yeah. Even just making the effort to attempt to speak the language. Uh, even if you don't speak it perfectly and maybe you know someone will reply to you in English but because you've made that effort yeah. it's very different and yeah. I've got to know more the sides of Brussels that are not like experts like, I've, I came back as an immigrant rather than an expert like for me the main difference you know, as an expert is you know, someone who comes here never considers the place home mm. just like an intermediate step between here and somewhere else in your career, in your life or your family like home is always, you know, especially Italians, like for a lot of Italians, home is still Italy.
1: Um, but home for Pastorelli now was Brussels. And what Piola Libri offered her this time around, beyond well-made spritz, was a comforting, if rough, simulacrum of the Trevisan Osterias and bars and cafes that she used to frequent when she was growing up in Italy.
0: I, I had like a, there was an Osteria next to my, uh, next to my high school, like a very okay. authentic, type of place where you will find the same old man in the morning, well, unfortunately you know, you're know, you going to school but they will be unfortunately already like drinking their first glass of wine, that's a separate type of problem, I'm not saying that that's what's happening here, but then you know you will still have the kids from school leaving and getting their sandwich there or when there was like a strike we would all be sitting there and you know the old men would be playing cards, we would also be playing cards. Uh, And that was also the place, despite the fact that I would very often go there during the week, it was also the place where I would meet up with my friends Mm. from other schools as well, but like on Saturday night for our dinner, which was probably the same sandwich we would also (laughs) eat during the week. But it was like affordable and it was unpretentious, uh, which I think is also something that like, the atmosphere here is also very unpretentious and that's also something that I don't,
1: and if Piola Libri isn't providing the requisite peninsular warmth or authenticity that Passarelli is looking for, she does have her favorite Italian supermarket and shops to fall back on.
0: There's also like a, uh, another like, small supermarket. There's also like a lot of places that are like mini boutique type yeah. of places and those are those do play on like, the like, fancy products and they're very expensive but there's in um, um, in Excel there's a small supermarket like it really like smells like like you walk through the door and it smells like an Italian supermarket it's called Stival and that's where you will go and get like your like different like products or cheese or uh, Nduja which is something that's still like quite difficult to find so yeah so when I want like a taste of like Nduja is definitely not a taste of Treviso but that's uh, um, that's, that's
1: one. And despite her current semi-detached relationship with Brussels' Italian colony, she's also noticed a recent trend of new Italian ventures, exemplified by the example of Latana, that are eschewing the broad Italian identity that was popularized in the city in the 80s and 90s, in favor of an increased focus on regionalism and people's home regions in Italy.
0: Like, Italy is a relatively recent invention as a state, and regions have a very strong cultural identity. Very like from you know from food to the language that's spoken to the dialect that's spoken, to the point that they're also getting like there's like let's say more specialized restaurants or shops,
4: mm-hmm.
0: regional, because the people from different regions they will want their own like different products their own like I want my typical cheese I want my special wine um, so we're getting more and more of that as well there's a shop for instance that uh, sells like products from Friuli so like northeast yeah Uh, exactly yeah where I'm sure you probably can find some pre-made like Frico which is this uh, mix of like Very buttery, like, potatoes and cheese.
1: Very Um, northern Italian. Yes, very northern (laughs)
0: Italian, very filling, very heartwarming. Uh,
1: Maybe none of this should come as a surprise. Maybe this is just history repeating itself. When it opened in the 1880s, Le was selling vermouths because its owners, and much of Brussels' small Italian community at the time, came from vermouth country in northern Italy. It's no surprise that Brussels' first pizzeria appeared in 1960 in the wake of Neapolitan and other southern Italians who'd arrived after World War II. Italians are, as Passarelli says, and her exacting standards for what makes a good spritz of test, proud of their home regions. And Brussels already has enough Italian places. So if you're going to carve out a niche for yourself in a crowded market, you might just have to mine the culinary bedrock of your little corner of Il Bel paese. It was during one of Brussels' interminable COVID 19 lockdowns when the idea for Mangia Sempre came to Julia Bevilacqua.
4: My name's Julia. Uh, I'm almost 30 years old and have been living in Brussels for six years now. I'm from Perugia. It's in, the, you know, Amanda Knox and this thing. Well, yeah. oh,
1: I was more thinking of the football team rather than the. Yeah, famous, yeah, famous but. Murder but murder. Okay. It's famous.
4: <laughs> for the
1: murder of
4: Meredith Kircher, but voila. And also for a football team, Forza Grifo.
1: (laughs) Bevilacqua's arrival in Brussels, she says, was down to happenstance and luck as much as anything else.
4: If I can be honest, uh, it was the less expensive flight um, from Perugia. And also I used to work in a craft beer bar in Perugia, Elfo pub, and uh, I didn't like beer at all and once they had a beer, a bottle, a 37.5 bottle of a pinkish beer and was like, what is that, why are you so happy about this? And they told me, it's, oh, that's a famous beer, you can't find it, you can't find it and it's so expensive and okay, uh, may I try it? And it was a Cantillon trick. So um, i fell in love uh, and I want here to work in a beer field.
1: First came jobs at the Mooderlambeck bar in Place Fontenas and then Bevelacqua worked as a tour guide at Cantillon itself, showing people through the brewery's museum. But she says herself, she wasn't a great museum person. And then when Covid hit, Bevelacqua found herself locked indoors with little to do, except cook.
4: So I just wanted to work in with people, yeah. but with food and drinks. So after Covid, uh, so I stayed at my place for two years as everybody else. Mm-hmm. And I started cooking, but not cooking as a restaurant, but like making food comfort, yeah. you know, like to 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 be a, a, to have this thing at the end of the day where you're just happy to sit at your table with family or your girlfriend or boyfriend and and just be happy that the day is gone and just eat, because Italy is the art of the table. So,
1: Out of this came Mangia Sempre. It doesn't at first glance look like it has anything in common with a place like Licirio, with its stripped back minimalist interior, bare walls, wooden shelves filled with oddly shaped pasta, dinky jars of red pesto, green bottles of Cantillon, compared to the latter's more exuberant Belle décor. But the spirit is sort of the same. Mangi Sempre, located on a quiet street between the Wheels Art Centre and Brussels Football Club Union, saint Giloise's home stadium, is part grocery store, part bar, part deli, part coffee shop, and full-time culinary embassy for Bevelacqua's hometown. And alongside the pasta, cheese and wine that bevel sources from Perugia and Umbria, there's also freshly baked focaccia and takeaway dishes made on-site by her. The inspiration for a lot of these, things like pasta al forno or risotto alla norma, still comes from her grandmother back in Perugia.
4: I I call my granny every day, what can I do today? And she tells me, uh, I made an apple pie with chocolate. And I called her, I can't make an apple pie. And she's like, okay, I'll send you the recipe. And she taught me how to cook, but via uh, internet, via the internet and via Skype. So it's, it's wonderful.
1: And isn't translating texts anymore. She got tired, she says, during a conversation of people asking her to do work for free. But that doesn't mean she's not still a translator just of another kind, she thinks.
4: I'm basically a um, translator and interpreter. And the first thing they learned, they taught me, is that translation is an explanation from a culture to another. And that's my place. I mean, I want to explain to people that Italy is not just a cliche. Uh, it's not all about puya or Sicily. Or Sardinia, there are other regions, and I wanted to bring mine also. And what I, what I mean here, it's really okay. I use products from here. The zucchini are from here; they're organic and stuff from small producers, and I make my Italian recipes because I want to translate things from here into my culture because I miss my culture, obviously, as well as you and other experts. And
1: the results is as much a synthesis as it is a translation in reality. A fusion of where Bevilacqua came from with the place that's given her a career perspective and a partner that she thinks wouldn't have been possible if she'd stayed in Italy.
4: I, I don't want to say I teach, but I, I explain, I translate that what they gave to me, they give me a job, they give me that Belgium gave me the possibility of opening something. I would, I, I would never, never open anything in Italy, it was just impossible because there were mafia and recommendations and stuff and voila. and my father is a mechanic, Ali uh, has a garage for motorcycles, so we're not in our field. I just want to, to tell people it's. Italian Zwanse. So you same, come here. <laughs> you come here. It's not like Ali you come to Italy, but you are in Brussels. So I'll use my Brussels action accent and I make different things. But I want to, to celebrate this union because my I am myself with with a Brussels guy. So Sometimes he wants some spaghetti bolognese or uh, he wants to make carbonara with cream and I'm so uh, so mad about it. So it's just sometimes people come here, they want pancetta for carbonara and I just explain, no, man, you have to make with guanciale. It's fat thing, but I'll explain you how to do it. No worries. If you want, to give you the recipe because uh, people don't want to cook. And another... The uh, purpose I have is just to, to tell them you can buy your product here and then you cook at your place. It's easy. Even if you don't have any time. Yeah. Even if you, have, if you don't have a lot of money, you, you can do it. You can eat good things.
1: Bevelac was Mangia Sempre. It's not a sal de degustation in the mold of Luchirio or a straight up supermarket like Stival and Uccle nor is it an ersatz osteria like Piola Libri, or a more traditional restaurant like Latana. She's coined a new word for what she thinks it is. She calls mangia sempre a knabelleria, a portmanteau of the Flemish verb knoble, to nibble, and the Italian word stucciceria, or place to nibble. It's a new form, maybe, and a new name for what it is, but it's the same mission as those first Italian entrepreneurs from 150 years ago, who tried to seduce their northern neighbours with Italy's culinary charms.
4: Place it's just a place where you can have your focaccia, you pay you come at the counter as a snack, but with good products and with love.
1: Mm-hmm.
4: And I think here people are, are sometimes a little bit cold, you know, so just want to give them a little bit of this warmth, <laughs> this that chaleur maybe not
1: yet. and that's it for this latest installment of the Brussels Beer City podcast diaspora season a huge thanks to all of my guests for speaking with me for this episode and to you guys for listening don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on whatever platform you listen on